Have you ever thought of growing apple trees? Maybe you already have some. I've been thinking of planting a couple in my garden in the spring. Recently, I spoke with Bob Osborne. He's the owner of Cornhill Nurseries in New Brunswick, and he wrote a book called Hardy Apples, Growing Apples in Cold Climates. If you want to know something about apple trees, listen up. He's coming up next. Well, my name is Bob Osborne, and um, I was originally living south of Sussex, New Brunswick, Mm -hmm. and I decided I would get some apple trees, and I bought five apple trees from the local Simpson Sears, and uh, they did very, very poorly, and I, at first I was thinking, well, maybe it's me, and then I realized that after doing some research that I had the wrong cultivars for our area. Mm-hmm. And so that got me interested in apples. And then I got interested in rootstocks. And then I found out about grafting. And that was kind of a magic moment for me. Right. Because I just could not imagine taking a little piece of a stick and putting it on a another stick and having it actually work. Mm-hmm. And that got me interested uh, in propagation of apples. And so I uh, eventually I moved over to my dad's place, who had a farm not far, far from us, which excellent soil, south southeast aspect, and so forth. So everything going for it, and that's when I started the nursery. And we started with apples, mm-hmm. and I think my first crop was forty-two grafted apples, mm-hmm. and now we do thousands of apples. And uh, we we gradually expanded so that we grow pretty much anything that's perennial and hardy. He's not kidding. I looked on their website, and in addition to apples, they're growing a complete range of hardy fruits, ornamental shrubs, and trees, and vines, and perennials. And you know what else? They grow it all without the use of pesticides or herbicides or chemical fertilizers. This really is a marvelous place. We have always specialized uh, in apples, and I got very interested in many of the older cultivars that are now disappearing rapidly. Right. Uh, we have, uh, of course, the, the usual types as well. And I'm particularly interested in the scab-resistant apples that have been being released uh, through what's called the PRI program. PRI stands for Purdue, Rutgers, and Illinois. And these are the three universities who are involved in a program to breed scab-resistant apples. And so that's kind of brought me to where I am now. And the book was really kind of condensed, a condensation, I guess, of all of, you know, the things I've learned about apples and what what to do and what not to do. And a lot of the, the newer materials that are available now for uh, organic production, which is a very, very difficult uh, thing to, to enter into and to produce quality fruit. I'm also interested in the history of many of these apples, and every cultivar has a history, mm-hmm. and some of them are really quite fascinating. Uh, and I like to mix up both what the fruit looks like, how it tastes, uh, things like you know when does it uh, ripen, and so forth, with the history. And so that's sort of how the book came about the way it does. 
The book is a hefty hardcover. It's almost 300 pages. It is published by Firefly Books. The book has a lot of information about the origin of apples, how an apple tree grows, the science of it, grafting, and that's the first half of the book. And then it gets into all the different varieties of apples. It is a wonderful book, and I'm planning on growing a couple of apples myself, so I'm, it comes at a most fortuitous time. Should I put in one apple or two? You need to have at least two different cultivars that flower mm -hmm. basically at the same time, because there is a, about a week period of flowering, and some are early, some are mid-season, and mm -hmm. some are late flowering. Uh, so it's important to do a little bit of research just to find out you know, what's there. Now, if you have apples around you, all of your mm -hmm. neighbors have apples, you probably could plant one with no problem whatsoever, because the bees do fly long distances to pollinate. But it's always a good idea to have two compatible cultivars. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, you know, if you had two short season or early season and two late season apples, you, you'd probably be pretty safe because they tend to flower early if they're early ripening and late if they're late ripening, but not always. So mm -hmm. again, a little bit of research is well worth the effort. In your book, you talk about the cultivar versus the variety of apple and there, there are no named varieties, right? Well, the the difference is really technical and, you know, maybe I'm putting people off by doing this, but a variety is actually a group of seedlings that have that are very similar. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of, you know, you're a pea or a bean or whatever, you know, let's say you get provider beans, right? Well, mm -hmm. everyone is genetically different, although they're very, very similar. That's a variety. A cultivar is an individual seedling that has been named and is grown uh, clonally so that you maintain the exact genetic makeup of that plant. Right. And so what we have, you know, something like a Cortland, for instance, that is a cultivar that was found, it was a seedling developed in New York, etc. Now, if you have uh, a number of you know, let's say a species and something that are very similar, you know, that could be a variety. So it's really a, it's a technical distinction, but what we are dealing with is called our cultivars, not varieties. Right. And you don't get varieties in apples. Is that correct? Well, it's not that you, not usually because the apple genome is twice the size of the human genome. Mm -hmm. And so they are self-sterile generally. So they have to be pollinated by another. And so when you cross those two genomes, essentially, you don't know what you're going to get because mm -hmm. the, the combinations and permutations are immense. And so you might, let's say, plant a Macintosh seedling, and it looks nothing like a Macintosh at all. Uh, it may be, you know, uh, a green apple or whatever, so that you cannot really propagate, let's say, a Macintosh apple from seed because you will not get more Macintosh. You have to propagate it by either a cutting, which is very difficult to do, or more likely a graft or a bud. I find this is a surprising thing for a lot of people. All Macintosh apples are from the same tree, as in the original Mac was a good apple, so the farmer took cuttings from that tree and grafted them onto other rootstock. And from those new apples, more cuttings were taken and grafted, and so on and so forth. Every Macintosh apple you eat today is actually a clone of that tree, and it's the same for any kind of variety of apple you eat. Mm -hmm. 
We're, we have a, a cultivar called Novamac, which is a Macintosh seedling crossed by a scab-resistant seedling. And it is very much like Macintosh, but that was probably picked out of thousands of seedlings. Mm-hmm. So, so occasionally they are the similar, but usually not. What about multi-apples, where they grafted several different varieties onto one root? Well, I mean, a lot of people use them because they don't have much space. And so you can put several different cultivars on. The problem we have found is that they tend to have different vigors. Mm-hmm. And uh, often they're small trees when you buy them. And then as they grow out, you really mm-hmm. have to start making choices of, you know, which one do we save, which one not, because you, you really can't grow all those branches close together like that. So they're kind of uh, a cute little thing. But in the long run, we advise people to just get a single cultivar onto whatever rootstock they want. You may have heard of the tree of 40 fruit in the United States. It has 40 different types of peach and plum and almond and apricot and so forth grafted onto it. And it's really quite a sight to see, in pictures anyhow. It was built or developed or made by Sam Van Aken, who's a professor at Syracuse University. It is still a novelty. Dr. Van Aken is, after all, a professor of sculpture. My mother once had, I think it was a crab, and it got fire blight. Oh, yes. So you can't plant another apple once you've had fire blight, is that correct? No. Uh, the, the, the secret is that you, if you learn to recognize what the symptoms of fire blight, you need to cut it out immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tends to have sort of a, it looks almost as if it were singed at the, at the tips, and often has a sort of uh, what we call the shepherd's crook look to the tip. If you have never had the occasion to see fire blight, let me tell you, it is not a pretty sight. I looked it up on Google. The shepherd's crook tip of the twigs isn't so bad. It's just the end of the branch curving back. And the leaves aren't terrible either. They just look, like Bob said, as if they've been singed. But if the fire blight goes far enough and infects the fruit, well, this is a horrifying sight. The fruit starts to weep sap from all over, and it it really is a look that apples should not have. And what you want to do is you want to prune that well below the infection that you see, because it travels down through uh, the, the, the systems of the plant. And it's actually advisable to sterilize your pruning shears between each cut, because if you do happen to get a little bit of that bacterium, you can spread it. Even though you're trying to get rid of it, you can still spread it. So you can, you know, it's just that you, uh, fire blight is rather vicious disease for uh, apples because it will keep moving through the tree. So you want to make sure that you cut it out right away. If you let it go for too long, it will tend to infect other trees around it. So it's really important to learn what it looks like and get rid of it as soon as you see it. And we tend to be seeing more in the north here because our temperatures are rising. And it used to, uh, if you got minus 30, minus 35, it would generally kill fire blight. But now a lot of our mild winters are bringing stuff that we never had before, including fire blight. Well, I'm I'm expecting it to still go down to minus 40 here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you're in Winnipeg, so it's it's unusual to get fire blight uh, where you are. I clarified with my mother, by the way, it was fire blight that killed her apple, and it was very advanced. 20 years later, maybe she should try another apple tree. 
Are there any diseases that mean you cannot plant an apple in the same place? Well, it's not so much a disease as it is a condition. When you have an apple tree, let's say an older apple tree, Mm -hmm. and it dies, in the root system of that tree are literally thousands of very very small microscopic organisms called nematodes. Mm -hmm. And if you rip that out and then put a young apple tree in its place, those nematodes will migrate to that young root system and often kill it. It's basically called a replant problem. And hmm. so it's advi- it's advisable not to put a young tree in the place where an older tree has just been taken out. If you wait a couple of years, probably no problem. Nematodes. We have an article on these creatures written by my mom in the latest issue of Canada's Local Gardener. They are fascinating. I know I can't get into it now because this is a podcast about apples, but I have to tell you, If all life other than nematodes were suddenly to disappear on Earth, you would still be able to see the outline of everything that existed, everything, because it's all covered in nematodes. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes to hear more from our expert, Bob Osborne, on growing apple trees. just got even better. Flora and fauna and new e-digest coming weekly. Go to localgardener.net to find out more information. That's localgardener.net. We're back and of course I had to ask Bob a few questions about what kind of apple trees I should grow and how I should go about it. Let me ask you Bob, should I start with an older tree or a young whip if I can afford an older tree or two trees? Should I get them? Um, as long as that tree is in good condition, it shouldn't matter whether it's a one, two, or three year. Generally, we don't we don't actually sell trees older than that. It's just a little bit more difficult for an older tree to establish itself. A young tree is probably safer, mm-hmm. a one or two year. You shouldn't have any trouble with it if it's well grown. The problem that you can run into is if it's handled by several people, if it dry, if that root system dries out ever in that process, the tree will have a very difficult time reestablishing itself Mm -hmm. and connecting with the soil. It's basically you have to connect the root system back with the soil mycorrhizae, which are like a fungal network that will actually grow right into the root system. Mm -hmm. And they help to feed and water that plant. So uh, it's very important that your roots be in good condition when they go in. If you're buying a potted tree and it's in good shape and so forth, then all you have to do maybe is tease the roots a bit on the outside, make sure they're not coiled around because they they will tend to keep going around and around, which is not good. And they can sometimes strangle themselves. But you just sort of tease those out a bit and then plant that and water it and you should have no trouble at all. Okay, you've got cooking apples and baking apples and you've got dessert apples, that I understand. That's for eating fresh. What's the difference between a cooking apple and a baking apple? Well, Probably very little, but the baking apple, a cooking apple is basically pies. And of course, you make sauce out of many apples. uh, Well, really any apple. Uh, Mm -hmm. The baking apple were generally larger apples that were cored and then filled with sugar and cinnamon or something like that, and Mm -hmm. then baked. And what their, their great characteristic was that they would hold together, right? And so you have things like pumpkin sweet was considered the primo 
baking apple, but it's not really that great a dessert apple. It's kind of, it's okay. But as a baking apple, it really excelled. And so you have certain uh, cultivars of apples that over uh, the last couple hundred years have been have been used for sauce, for uh, pies. Uh, you have things like Northern Spy and Bramley. Uh, these are these are excellent pie apples. Uh, Yellow Transparent, or some people call August Apple, was a premier sauce apple. Some apples are a little too soft. If you make a pie with them, it goes kind of mushy, right? Mm-hmm. Where you want it to hold together and yet be soft at the same time. So uh, that's, and uh, usually they're tart too, because if you have a sweet apple, especially if you're adding sugar, mm-hmm. the taste of the apple pie is bland. But if you have a tart apple, like Rhode Island Greening or Northern Spy, there's enough tartness there to balance the sweet. So you get a really excellent flavor. Yeah, it's like with cherries, uh, baking a, a cherry pie with a sweet cherry just is not. No, it's not the same. <laughs> yeah. It's great to find out that experts agree that you need tart apples for baking because sweet apples just don't cut it. I've heard of people using red delicious apples for baking pies. Why would you do that? While we're talking about pies, just briefly, let me put in a pitch for good old lard for making crust. Our president and chief cookbook writer Ian Leap believes in butter for making short crust. Me? I'm a traditionalist and it has got to be lard. But I digress. Let's ask Bob about a few specific varieties. Red Delicious. You <laughs> mentioned a few things in your book about it. Tell me, tell me about what, what do you think about Red Delicious apples? Well, I mean, Red Delicious has made it big because it looks gorgeous. It has that, that perfect shape. It's very, very red, 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 red. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interestingly enough, when I was doing my research on this, I found that the original uh, Red Delicious came from a place called Peru in uh, Iowa. Mm-hmm. And he actually cut the tree down a couple of times and kept coming back. And he finally said, well, if they must grow, they will. And it produced these apples. And they were a striped red apple called mm-hmm. Hawkeye. And the original apple probably tasted much better than the modern ones because they have selected for color. They want the reddest, reddest. And it's interesting that a lot of the aromatics of apples are connected with the gene for yellow. And so they've actually bred out a lot of the flavor from Red Delicious. So that's why, I mean, most people these days, it's quite de rigueur to consider them oh they you know red delicious is a terrible apple and you know tastes like cardboard and so forth and to a certain extent i i understand exactly what they mean um but in the north it's not you will not get the same product you would from washington state for instance because it really requires a longer season than we generally have you know we're lucky to get 100 frost free days and so if you if you're growing here and we do have a red delicious tree we get a product that looks sort of like it. It's generally smaller, uh, which is probably doing due to you know lack of thinning and so forth. But um, but it tends to be not as interesting. I don't know. It, it just it, it does not have the flavor profile that you're looking for. Uh, does not generally color up quite as well. Um, so you know, yes, you can grow red delicious in the north, but generally you're not going to get what you're expecting. 
Well, that what you were saying about the flavor profile changing, it might explain why when I was um, a kid, I can remember my grandmother used to buy apples and I had a red delicious apple every day after lunch. And I remember them being quite tasty, but since then I have zero interest. They used to taste a little rosier. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, um, I, th- I, th- I think a lot of that is due to that selection process that's gone on. And mm-hmm. what it is about is about looks rather than flavor. And what about Macintosh apples that originated in Ontario? And they're one that I am quite fond of because I don't, I have to admit, I don't care for an apple that is completely crisp. Mm-hmm. I like it to have a little bit of give. Yeah. I think a lot of people are with you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is sort of a craze to have the crunchiest apple that you can get, and that's fine. I mean, I, I like I like it too, but mm-hmm. I like them all. But uh, Macintosh uh, has that uh, flavor profile that is again a, a great balance between sweet and tart, mm-hmm. and and with maybe a little bit of edge to sweetness, especially if it's properly ripened. One of the problems we find with Macintosh is that quite often they're picked earlier than they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes sometimes people in U-Picks, you know, they, they've got to have their Macintosh. They go out, even if the orchard tells them they're not ready yet, they're not ready yet. And they will be disappointed by the flavor because it'll be way too tart. It's not so much just tart and sweet, but you have various aromatics in apples. And that's what makes it so complicated to try to describe to people, you know, what the flavor is. It's almost as you got to gotta eat it to find out. So it does have all these aromatics, but it has to be picked at the proper time. And it is, it's a fantastic apple. I love it. But it, it does have severe disease problems, especially with scab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we are steering people toward is one that was developed in Kentville, Nova Scotia, um, and it's called Novamac. And, and again, it's a cross and it has the same basic profile as a Macintosh, but does not have any scab. It's, it's one of the easiest apples to grow we found. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get into really like zone three, I'm not sure it would actually do well. It's a zone four for sure. But when we did go down to minus 40 a couple of times, we did have a little bit of tip kill. So that's a a sign that it's probably good for zone four, but maybe not uh, into zone three. Uh, There is another variety of apple that I want to bring up. It's the New Brunswicker. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's where you're growing your apples. (laughs) Tell yeah, me about right. the New Brunswicker. Well, the Brunswicker is interesting. It was developed by a, a guy named Francis Peabody Sharp. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy back in the 1800s who had probably the largest orchard, one of the largest orchards in Canada. And he would ship apples to Montreal and Boston and so forth by the carload. And he just he did some of the first breeding work in North America. And one of his one of the, the Duchess seedlings, because Duchess was brought in from Europe because of its hardiness. And he grew seedlings of Duchess and found this one that he really liked called and he called it New Brunswicker. And uh, what happened apparently is that it came to be that people said, oh, it's the same as Duchess. And there has been a, this debate raging here, especially in New Brunswick, about, you know, is it really distinct? And there was uh, a fellow um, from Keswick Ridge who uh, is, uh, that's an apple growing area, who started to do his due diligence. And it turns out that a fellow from, I think it was Iowa, uh, stopped by at Francis B. Buddy Sharp and took cuttings or cyan wood from him. And he called them New Brunswick Duchess or Duchess of New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And and that got into uh, one of the great nurseries in America. And the Stark brothers called it, I think, Duchess of New Brunswick. And therefore, it got the idea that the Brunswickers were the same. But they actually are two distinct cultivars, even mm-hmm. though they are similar. They're both early. The Duchess is redder. It's it's stripey, but it becomes more red at maturity, whereas the New Brunswicker stays a bit more sort of yellowy and stripey. But uh, although they're similar, they're, they are distinct. It's astonishing. How many apples are, are do you profile in the book? Uh, I think it's 90, I believe. Right. Are they all commercially available now? Some, Some of them are hard to find because only a few uh, specialty nurseries carry them. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to start getting demand for some of these older, really good apples that have been tossed aside because they don't ship as well or, you know, they don't look the way they want them to look and so forth. And I really think that it's time for a sort of renaissance of apples because apples are really, I would say, the most important fruit grown in North America. Wow, you know, even though the apple is not native to Canada or even North America, I guess I do think of it as something kind of close to my heart, something woven into the fibers of my being. And maybe you do too. If I say, what kind of picture do you see when I say pie? I bet the pie in your mind's eye is apple. I just think that the loss of these apples is a tragedy in a way, because these were apples that, again, often were specialty apples. They kept well. And of course, before refrigeration, that was super important. They dried well, or they baked well, or, you know, almost all of them had a specific characteristic that made them uh, admirable for for whatever. Some of the flavors are remarkable. I mean, I have this, uh, this apple called Frostbite. For instance, mm-hmm. it was developed in Minnesota, and it is the humblest looking apple you could imagine. Uh, it's small-ish, small to medium size, so it doesn't have size going for it. It's often kind of russety, and so it just doesn't look like much. But when you bite into that apple, you will taste uh, a flavor that is like no other. Mm-hmm. And it has it has the crispness, juiciness that people want. I, I've described it as sort of comparing wine to brandy. It's so intense, an apple flavor, and it has this sort of sugar cane-like sweetness, but it's nutty and complex and so forth. So an apple like that should not disappear. And it turns out it's the grandfather of Honeycrisp, which is quite funny, I think. Like Bob said earlier, he covers about 90 different varieties of apple in his book. I would love to talk about them all, but there is so much more to discuss, and we'll do that right after this break. is a symbol of sexual seduction. We all know the story of Adam and Eve, and the apple, of course, and even though some today say it was really a pomegranate, which is technically a berry, apples are still the fruit of choice for sexual illusion. The Adam's apple was so named for the legend that it came from a piece of apple getting stuck in Adam's throat. The apple was sacred to Aphrodite in Greek mythology, Also, in ancient Greece, tossing an apple to a girl was a proposal, while catching it was acceptance. (music) 
Johnny Appleseed is a fellow we don't really talk about much anymore. Well, not in Canada anyway. He was a real person named John Chapman, and he was an American nurseryman way back in the early 1800s. The legend is that he went around the wilderness scattering apple seeds, but he didn't do that exactly. He planted orchards of apples from the waste from apple cider mills. He didn't believe in grafting apples, a belief that was probably associated with his let nature be philosophy. He was a vegan, and some people say he went around barefoot even through the winter. But the reason John Chapman planted so many apples was not for pies or baking or eating. It was for making cider. He brought alcohol to the people, and that is how you become a legend. Do you know anybody who makes their own cider? Oh, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. we have a fellow who uh, he uses our apples from the orchard because there's such a huge variety. So he can get a great mix. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he uses wild apples as well. And uh, he makes a typical English style cider, which is not most ciders are. I would compare them kind of like uh, maybe an ale in, or a lager instead of a, a stout, because the English ciders were generally uh, had higher tannins. You know, they were more uh, they were darker in color. Many of them were not carbonated. Like most modern apple ciders are are carbonated and very light, and they're made with apples like you know Macintosh and Cortland and Honeycrisp and so forth. So they tend to be kind of easy drinking. The ones that uh, this fellow called, calls it wood fruit is uh, much, much different. And not all people would like it, but it, it shows what a typical cider used to be like. And does he, he makes it for himself or does he sell it? He, he makes it himself, but it's only sold through us uh, because he doesn't have enough production to go with and be liquor because they need consistent availability all year and he can't do that. There are at least a dozen cider manufacturers in New Brunswick now. Mm-hmm. It's become, I would say we have a restaurant here and I would say that now we sell an equal number of ciders to beer, which is really quite startling. Wow. Oh yeah, it's very big now. Do you know of people who grow who just make cider for themselves? Like the way people are into making wine for themselves? Yes and no. I mean, I can't think of anybody offhand, but I know people are making cider. I have made cider mm-hmm. uh, before with apples. It actually, I had one run that was probably my best effort ever. And it, it was like champagne because it had apparently when it was bottled, I didn't use sulfites and it must have had a bit of sugar left that carbonated it. So it popped open and it was just like champagne. Oh, wow. uh, so uh, if, if it's done properly, it, it can be a beautiful drink. I've never thought of making cider or beer or wine for that matter, but I said I'd like to. I mean, to get a batch that tastes like champagne, sign me up. And Bob said it isn't that hard to do. It's not that hard. No, basically, I mean, you. Uh, we have a, a, a press, so it, we you shred the apple, and mm-hmm. then they're put um, in layers, and we have these cloths and so forth, and then it's pressed down hydraulically, mm-hmm. and you get out the juice, and then basically you put that in an open structure, just like you would with grapes. And uh, now you could do it by, you can kill the yeast that are there and then put in your own yeast or like Woodfruit does, he uses just the natural yeast that are on the apples. 
Mm-hmm. He cold ferments for a long period of time, which is unusual. But anyway, you get your, once it starts bubbling up and foaming and so forth, you sort of skim that off and keep punching it down. And then eventually you, when it slows down, you put it into a carboy and you put a, an airlock on it mm-hmm. so that the carbon dioxide is escaping as the yeast uh, turn the sugar into alcohol and uh, and then you then you sort of you have to rack it off a couple of times so that you take it off the leaves that are they're settling on the bottom and then oh, I would say you know within about half a year you bottle it <laughs> you said it wasn't that difficult <laughs> <laughs> well I mean there, there it's like everything else it's not that it's so difficult or it takes so much time but you have to do it when it needs to be done carboys leaves okay first off I don't have a hydraulic press, but I can get past that. I don't have an airlock, but I suppose I could buy one. But half a year? This is no Sunday afternoon bread-baking chore. By the way, a carboy is a big glass jug, if you didn't know. I didn't, and it's also called a demijohn. Nonetheless, John mentions timing, which brings us back into the world of growing apples instead of fermenting them. The time, the timing, for instance, if you're spraying for maggot, the timing is absolutely critical. Most people waste sprays just thinking, oh, I I get a fruit spray and I just spray the trees. And they're doing that in the spring usually. That might kill something, but it has has no effect on the maggot, which is not there till July. So you have to know when to spray for the maggot. You have to know when to spray for scab, which is usually just before the petals open. And so if you miss that, uh, you miss your opportunity to have success. So timing is everything. Okay, so I get my two trees. Say they're two-year-old trees. I plant them, and then what? I plant them in the spring, right? You can, well, you can plant them in the spring, or if you have containers, you can plant them anytime you can dig the ground. So let's say I have bare root, and I plant them in the spring, say May, because it's Winnipeg. What do I do next? First of all, you should uh, lime your ground. Now, it depends on your pH. Uh, the pH basically is, I'm sure you know, but it basically is, measures the acidity level in your soil. Um, and do, do apples like uh, the oil on the acidic side or on the alkaline side? They like it just on the acidic side of neutral. And okay. so your pH scale runs from 0 to 14, mm-hmm. 0 being like hydrochloric acid and 14 like lye. Mm-hmm. And in the middle is neutral. So water is neutral. Mm-hmm. And they like at about 6.5 to 7. That is ideal for apples. Mm -hmm. They will grow in a more acidic soil. They will not be as efficient at uptaking nutrients Mm -hmm. because what happens as the pH of your soil rises is it becomes more toward neutral. The bonds that are holding things like calcium, magnesium to the hydrogens will break apart. And then they become free-floating ions, which are easy for the, the tree to uptake. If they're if it's too acidic, they're simply not efficiently feeding. Even though your soil might have the phosphorus and, the, and magnesium and so forth, in an acidic soil, you will they will not be available to the plant. So very, very important to get your pH up to neutral or near neutral. This is so important. I mean, if you're just starting out as a gardener, don't worry about pH so much. Just plant your vegetables or flowers and see how they do. But if you're investing in a tree, it pays to get it right. You can do a soil test yourself using a kit you get at Canadian Tire or somewhere. It's really simple. I tested my soil in my Toronto garden, but I have yet to do it here. You probably have more acidic soil. 
Yes. Now you out west, you might have alkaline soils. Even. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to look into it. <laughs> yeah, and so if your soil uh, has a pH above seven, uh, what you can do actually is add sulfur, just like you would lime, to an acidic soil, and what that does is it creates acid, and it will lower the pH again toward where you want it. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, you need that perfect pH to grow a perfect apple. And then I mean, once once you got it planted, you should stake at least the first year. And then if you have a dwarf rootstock, for instance, which are not usually very well anchored, you need to stake it really for its life, uh, which is one reason we often steer people towards semi-dwarf because many of the semi-dwarf trees or rootstocks are fairly well anchored. So if you just stake it for a year, you'll be fine. I knew I'd have to stake my trees. The wind here, even in the center of Winnipeg, can be brutal, so it makes sense. Now, it seems to me that I've always heard you shouldn't harvest anything in the first year you plant a fruit tree. You're supposed to pull off all the blossoms so that the tree puts effort into developing stronger roots. I've always wondered if I'd have the fortitude to do that. The first year, does it get blossoms, this two-year-old tree? That depends. Uh, mostly on the rootstock and some on the cultivar. If you have something like a yellow transparent, you can have blossoms the first year you put it in. But if you try something like Northern Spy uh, on a seedling root, you can wait seven or eight years before you'll get fruit. So in those cases, what you want is you want to choose a rootstock that's going to force early fruiting. And that's really what dwarfing does. It's Some people have this idea that it kind of strangles the tree, you know, and so it won't grow. But that's not really true at all. Uh, what it does is it forces the tree into early production. and all of the energy goes to seed. Seed takes more energy than leaves and all the rest of it. Very concentrated. And so once you start producing all this fruit, you tend not to produce much vegetative growth. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the tree stays smaller. It can be a problem, even like one of the big problems they find with Honeycrisp is that it is so precocious, so early bearing, and mm -hmm. produces these huge crops that after a while it runs the tree. And so now they're actually starting to prune some of the spurs where the flowers are produced in order to thin the fruit, as it were. And then you'll get larger fruit again and, and a little bit more vegetative growth. So you know, it's, all of these things are, they sound complex, I guess they are, but they're important to know when you're planting. But most trees, especially if they're on a productive rootstock, you should expect fruit within about three years or maybe four. And can I can I harvest that fruit and use it or should I? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things to, to worry about is if it's a very young tree and it produces quite a few apples, you should take those apples basically off. Maybe leave yourself two or three. But what that does, it, it will stunt the, the growth of the tree because, again, it's putting its energies into the seed. You want to have a good sized tree before it starts to really be productive. So it seems I will have to find the fortitude to pull off at least most of the blossoms in the first couple of years if I get any. Okay, I can do that. Uh, what about pruning the tree and getting it into the correct shape? The first thing when you have a young tree like that is to create a balance, what they call scaffolding. And the ideal tree these days uh, is more like a Christmas tree form than anything else. So you have a single leader mm -hmm. and then you have, you select, if it's an open grown, you select branches that are about approximately 8 to 12 inches apart. 
and in different directions so that when it does start to have a crop, you know, the load doesn't lean the tree one, one way or other. Now, as it grows up... The recording sounds a little wonky here. What he says is, as the tree grows up, you get one, two, possibly three branches where you don't want them. Branches where you don't want them. So you you select the branches that are going to be the main branches. As it grows, I should say too that if if you have too much growth, you you, you want to kind of keep it down. It's better to prune actually in oh maybe a mid July because oh, then yeah. when you prune, rather than getting the the really vigorous growth you do when you prune in the spring, which will just give you the same problem you're trying to get rid of, pruning in the in July will set smaller lateral below the cut that will often produce fruit rather than vegetative growth. So uh, there are different methods depending on what you're trying to do in the tree. But basically you want to produce you know, an evenly balanced scaffolding uh, for the tree. Now, if you look at a lot of the most apples today are produced in high density orchards. And these are actually kind of two-dimensional trees where they have posts and wires, just like you would grapes. And what they're doing is they do the same thing. They have a single straight uh, terminal with side branches. But when a a branch gets more than half the size of the the main trunk, it's removed and the base of the cut is left wide so that it'll produce another smaller branch. And what they're doing is they're selecting for the less vigorous horizontal branches. Those are the ones that are going to produce the fruit for them. Upright growth generally is vegetative and will not produce fruit till later, the side branches. So the, the smaller, uh, and the same thing happens when you're doing things like espalier against a wall, mm-hmm. where you're creating, again, a two-dimensional tree. And what you're doing is, over the years, you're removing vigorous growth and leaving the less vigorous growth mm-hmm. and, and tending to horizontal, because that is where you get the best fruit production. Yeah, apparently um, espaliering is not, is not ideal on the prairies. I'm yeah. not sure why yet. I, yeah, I've heard it's because it's too cold, but that doesn't make sense if you were spelling No, actually, I would think that it would actually help. I've looked up espalier on the prairies, and I can't find anyone who reports that it's difficult. So why don't you see them very often in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba? Well, I guess I didn't really see them all that much when I lived in Ontario either. The point of espalier is to get more fruit into a small space, and traditionally, space is the one thing we have on the prairies. If you get a south-facing wall mm-hmm. uh, and you have a good, again, a good hardy root plus a good hardy cultivar, you shouldn't have any trouble. Should mm-hmm. should be a, actually an excellent way to get fruit earlier because generally speaking, I have one on an espalier and it will be ripe a good week to two weeks earlier than the ones in the orchard just because of that trapped heat of the building. So maybe prairie folks should give espalier a whirl. Maybe we should have a podcast on doing it too. Now, before I let Bob go, I had one more question for him, and it's one that would be of interest to some of our more northern listeners. What's the lowest zone apple you are aware of? What what apple will put up with the... We have, we have one, a couple. There's uh, Patterson, um, Carroll. Uh, some of these are definitely good to zone two, and mm-hmm. some are being tried in zone one. Let me add that in addition to Patterson and Carroll... There are a few more apples that are hardy to zone two. Battleford, Norkent, 
Prairie Sensation and September Ruby are some that you should be able to find at your local nursery if you live on the prairie. Bob also covers Parkland, Norland, Yellow Transparent, and Antonovka in the book. And all the apples he talks about are hardy to at least zone four. You can order online from Cornhill Nursery in New Brunswick at cornhillnursery.com. They will ship one, two, or occasionally three-year trees across the country. But that is not all. Oh, no, that is not all. They also sell roses, small fruit, and ornamental shrubs by online order. And if you are in New Brunswick or you can get there, do drop by during the season and see their complete line of shrubs and plants. The village of Cornhill is about halfway between St. John and Moncton. It has been just wonderful talking to you. I I thought you'd tell me all about what was in the book and not new things. And now you've told me a bunch of new things and my mind is just blown. So thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure. And I also need to thank the Government of Canada for making this podcast possible, as well as Yasmin Conception, our sound person. But please don't blame her for the quality of the sound on this recording. You can only do so much with what I handed her. I want to thank Carl Thompson, our visual production person, and Ian Lee, the president of Pegasus Publications. And I want to thank you for listening. Until next week.